If you would please take your copies of God's Word and turn in them to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, the same chapter that our scripture reading was from earlier this morning. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 35 through 49. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 35. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. And there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. So what is it with the resurrection? So it is with dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that gives us comfort, that gives us truth, that gives us peace. Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to it, that we might behold marvelous things. We ask that as we hear your word, our hearts, our minds, and our vision would be set upon the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is indeed worthy of worship. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Easter is an important time for the church. And it's especially an important time for individual believers. 
We've been told this over and over again in the news this last week. But if we're not careful, we'll miss the real and true point of Easter. We can focus on Easter being the largest attendance day of the church year. We can focus on Easter being a special service. Even thoughts of it being the holiest time of the year. But that's not where our focus should be. The truth is that Easter is important to us because it focuses us on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And also on the resurrection of the believer. It's the resurrection that's important. That's what Paul meant in verses 12 through 19. It's the resurrection that's important because if the resurrection is not true, then nothing else matters. Christianity, your faith, cannot survive the loss of the resurrection. It is not a disposable belief. And so, Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 15 what we can look forward to with the resurrection of our bodies. That our resurrection follows Jesus' resurrection. And he tells us three things that I would like us to see from our text this morning. First, he tells us about the reality of the resurrection. And then second, he tells us about the renewal of the resurrection. And then finally, he tells us about the redemption of the resurrection. The resurrection's reality, the resurrection's renewal, and the resurrection's redemption. Let's begin then by starting at verse 35 and look at what Paul tells us about the reality of the resurrection. Now, context is always important when we study the Bible, but it's especially important here as we pick up in, quite frankly, the middle of Paul's thought. 1 Corinthians 15 is one entire thought in which Paul emphasizes the resurrection. This chapter is known as the central chapter in all of the Bible about the resurrection. It should be no surprise to you that that is our text this morning. And it's not as if Paul is setting forth some sort of theoretical teaching. This is not an academic lecture that Paul is giving. No, Paul is answering objections from those who think that the resurrection is foolish. That it's a dream that's unreal. The question is raised directly by Paul in verse 12. And then again, he raises it here in verse 35. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, this is a sharp question. It's someone asking, this doesn't make any sense, does it? It's not real. How can a dead body come back to life? What is this? Some kind of zombie religion where dead people come up and walk around? Do you see that in this question? What kind of body will they have? It's a mocking question. It's a question designed to make Paul look foolish. It's as if they're asking, do you expect to have a reanimated corpse? Or maybe bodies that are stitched back together again, like Frankenstein's monster. Well, Paul gives us the answer. He gives us insight to this. He is not afraid to take on hard questions. Paul does this all the time. We see this over and over again in his letter to the Romans. 
He's not afraid to answer clearly and boldly. Paul is not embarrassed by the question, and so we should not be either. He won't apologize for the resurrection. He turns the tables on the questioners and he says, You foolish people. Are you really so foolish as to think that we expect zombies or stitched together dead? Do you really think that's what we're talking about? Now, this is help for you and for me in our days as we speak to others in our society. Because there are many in our world today who attack the faith as being unscientific, as being unthinking, foolish, if you will. And so we should not be afraid of defending the faith. We should not be embarrassed to say that we believe the truth. That's exactly what Paul is doing for us here. He is modeling that for us. And he gives an answer. And the answer is, first and foremost, a practical answer. It's practical in that he draws upon nature to show the reality of the resurrection. It's as if Paul says to his questioner, Don't you know about farming? Haven't you ever planted a seed? Now, you have to understand that there would be perhaps no more practical analogy that Paul could use here. Because in Paul's day, the vast majority of the society were farmers. It's not like in our day where a small percentage of the people are farming and producing the food for the rest of society. Everyone would know about planting. Even if they weren't producing food to be sold at market, they would be producing food for themselves. It's almost as if Paul is looking at someone in our society and saying, have you never heard of a smartphone? Do you not understand what the internet is? If someone had said to him, how could you possibly talk to a congregation that is not present in your building? Paul would say, have you heard of video? Have you heard of recordings? It's kind of been around for a while. It's a big thing. So Paul uses a very practical analogy to get their attention. The reality of the world, Paul says, points to the reality of the resurrection. He takes the most real thing he can think of, and he compares the resurrection to it. There's no daylight at all between these two things. He wants the resurrection to appear to your ears and your eyes as the most real thing in the world. Life comes from death in nature. That's what planting a seed is all about. And if that's the case, then why wouldn't it be the case with the resurrection? Why wouldn't the resurrection have life come from death? But there's also a philosophical point. The culture that Paul is in was much like our culture. It saw no future beyond the living here and now. No hope after life. Even if someone thought there was something more after life, it would be a pale shadow. It would be dark. It would be an existence not really even worth living. And certainly, it wouldn't be related to the body at all. There was no bodily life that goes on. I think this is what animates our day today. It's why there's so much focus in our world upon death, upon saving life at all costs, because people believe there's nothing beyond this life. And so we have to preserve every second of life that we can. 
This is true even in the midst of our callousness about life at large. We don't want to think beyond life. But Paul is saying that there's something more. For sure. In fact, he will tell us that the best is yet to come. That's what's behind his argument. The resurrection is sure, Paul says. And you can take that to the bank. Paul goes on to show the continuity that the resurrection has with creation. He says here in verse 37, And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Now, remember that the foundation of the idea of the resurrection is the body of Jesus Christ. from the grave. Not someone else, no other being, it's the same Jesus. And so the resurrection reality flows from our current reality. Now, while the resurrection body is not exactly like our current bodies, verse 37 makes this clear, and we'll see this a bit more later, it's not completely foreign to our current body either. There is a correlation. There is a connection. There is continuity. God is still in control. God has a plan. Do you see that in verse 38? But God gives it a body as He has chosen. And to each kind of seed, its own body. The seed, that bare kernel that Paul talks about, is different from the plant, that is the body, but both are chosen by God. And each body is fitted to the seed. Or that animals yield humans? No, there is a continuity in nature. There is a relationship between what is sown and what is grown. And so your hope in the resurrection rests not in fantasy, but in God and in His plan and in His creation. It is God's sovereignty in establishing all of creation that gives us insight into this new creation. In fact, as Paul talks about all these different kinds of bodies... He intentionally points us to creation. Do you see the order that he uses? He talks about humans, animals, birds, fish, the sun, the moon, and the stars. This is exactly the reverse of the order that we find in creation in Genesis 1 and 2. You see, Paul is drawing on creation, but he's giving us the reverse for re new creation. This indeed will be a new creation that we will be a part of in the resurrection reality, but it will not be completely other. There is a relationship that is found with now. Now, this should help us to think about the resurrection. Jesus was real. He is still Jesus. 
His disciples recognized Him after He rose from the grave. They spoke with Him. They knew Him, and He knew them. So it will be with our resurrection. It is tied to our reality now. It is sure, even though it will not be exactly the same. Now this brings us to Paul's second point. The renewal of the resurrection. There is indeed continuity between our present reality and the resurrection reality, but there is also renewal. That's why Paul takes the time to talk about the different kinds of bodies and the different kinds of glories in verses 40 and 41. Just because the resurrection body will not be the exact same as our current body does not mean it's not real. And we should be glad that it is not going to be the same. Think about your body now. Does it ache? Hurt? Have you gotten older? Now, even for you young ones here, you may not hurt, you may not ache yet, but you haven't reached your full potential. You don't have the fullness of your strength yet, the fullness of your height. There are weaknesses and limitations inherent in your growth. We're all very aware of the weakness of the body today, aren't we? Because even with all of our technology, a microbe that we can't see is killing people all over the globe. Our current bodies have weakness and limitation. And if this is the best that it gets, it's not very good. But Paul tells you that your resurrection body will be transformed. It will be renewed. The body that you have now is subject to bondage, to decay. This is the result of sin. The very first moment that Adam sinned, from that very moment, he began to die. And all of creation around us now is a testimony to the destructive power of sin. Sin not only destroys relationships and lives, it destroys nature and even the physical. Your body now is, Paul says, perishable. It is corrupt. Literally, your body is breaking down as we speak. It's decaying. You can't stop it. Aren't we all aware of this? I know that the world is. There's an entire industry around trying to deny the reality of the decay of the body. All sorts of pills and treatments and creams and foods, all designed to stop time, as it were. To halt perishability, corruption. But the truth is that it is Jesus who has conquered death. He rose from the grave because death could not hold him. And that makes all the difference. So Paul uses four different ways to describe this renewal. He says first that the perishable is to be imperishable. That is the exact opposite. If we are perishing now, what Jesus has ushered in is imperishability. And the word here could not be simpler or more instructive. Imperishable is merely the word for perishable with a negative prefix put in front of it. 
In the Greek, it's an A. In the English, you see the I am. It's the exact opposite. 180 degrees away. The second way that Paul describes it is, he says that what is dishonorable will now become glorious. Death robs us of honor, doesn't it? It is the great leveler. There is nothing that takes away honor and respectability like death. Kings and beggars are equal in death. We are placed into the ground, dirt thrown over our casket. It's not exactly the most honorable of positions. But Paul tells us that the resurrection will be a putting away of dishonor and it will be a putting on of glory. And of course, we see that in a glimpse of what we see of the Lord Jesus Christ in the 40 days after his resurrection as he went and taught and talked and ministered to the disciples. The resurrection body will be glorious. Paul also says that what is weak will now have power. Jesus has broken the curse of death. He has borne that curse for you. And his rising up shows that death has no more sting, no more power against you. Where once we were weak, now we are strong. We look to a day when we will have no more weakness. When our bodies will be freed, renewed, when we will have power. That's what Jesus' resurrection promises for you and for me. The fourth way that Paul describes this renewal is that it becomes the spiritual. Now, what does this mean? At first glance, we might contrast the physical with the non-physical, the invisible with the visible, the immaterial with the material. But that's not what Paul is saying here when he's speaking of the the physical and the spiritual. Paul does not actually use the Greek word for physical here, like the word we get physics from. He could have used it. Instead, he uses the phrase natural. And this word is related to the word psyche, which we get psychology from, or the soul from. It is the animating principle of life. That's what Paul's talking about here. Our current bodies are fitted for our current existence, creation as we know it, that we are alive, that this is natural. And so the contrast then is to the spiritual. Now, When Paul says a spiritual body, he can't say a body made of spirit. That makes no sense at all. That's not a body at all. That is, instead, rather, the spiritual body is one that is adapted to the immaterial, permanent, spiritual nature of God's kingdom. The resurrection body will be perfectly fitted for the new creation that was begun by Jesus on that very first Easter. Do you see now why the resurrection is important? Jesus is remaking all of creation. He is doing away with sin and death and establishing life and peace. Your current body won't fit there. 
It would be out of place. But the Lord will give you a new body. You won't be floating on some cloud strumming a harp. No. God is renewing His creation. He is making it as He intended. Better even, in fact, than in the day when Adam walked the earth. Creation will be a place where Jesus rules and dwells with His people. And there, you will have a body that is perfectly fit for that reality. Every part of you, body included, will belong to Jesus. Well, now the third thing that Paul explains to us is how this renewal is possible. He tells us about the redemption that comes by the resurrection. Now, you might ask, how did I get myself in this situation? How did I come to the place where I'm surrounded by death and sickness and sin? How can God get me out of it? Perhaps even more directly, where can I find hope in the midst of all that terrifies me and depresses me? This is a relevant question every day. But it's especially relevant today. You perhaps are looking around you and you are afraid. You wonder what the world will be like in 20 years. You wonder how you and your family will make it through the next few months. Paul tells you that you can have hope because the resurrection shows you redemption. He's told us the sad state of our current existence that is cursed by sin. That sin has literally turned the world upside down. We think of death natural. You know that phrase? He died of natural causes. Death is not natural. It is a curse that has broken into the world. We think of weakness as natural. We think of dishonor as natural because it's all around us. But that is not natural. It is not the way things are meant to be. It is not the reality of God's world. And so in one sense these things are natural because they occur around us every day. And Paul tells us this in verse 44. He tells us that they are natural. But what does he mean by that? He explains it in verse 45. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He tells us about the first man, Adam. That's actually what the name Adam means. It means man or human. Adam was the first living being. He was made from the earth, Paul reminds us in verse 47. He was a man of dust. That's the story you may recall from the very beginning of the Bible, that God took the earth and He fashioned it into Adam, and He breathed life into Adam, and Adam became a living being. But then... Genesis goes on to tell us how Adam sinned against the Lord God. How he disobeyed against God. How when God had given him free reign over everything but one tree, that Adam could not resist that temptation. That he fell. 
And so when Adam sinned, he brought death upon himself. But death did not stop there. All of the weaknesses, all of the dishonors, all of the curses that came to Adam also came upon you and me. All mankind descending from Adam, the Bible tells us, are subject to his curse. Paul puts it this way in another of his letters, the letter to the Romans, chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Paul tells us that sin has come upon all mankind, even those who have not sinned in the same way that Adam sinned. The bad news that you need to hear is that you bear the image of Adam. Paul says this in verse 48, As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. We share in Adam's life. We are alive. But we also share in his curse. Now, you know that, don't you? We talked about weakness, disease, and age earlier. But you also know that you experience sin. You know that you are not perfect. You know that you hurt others. You know you fall short each and every day. Even if you won't admit it or publicize it, you know in your heart of hearts that you are a sinner. So what does this bad news have to do with the resurrection? It's that the bad news is not the end of the story. Remember that Paul is giving us a contrast here. He's been comparing the natural body with the spiritual body. And he's shown us how superior the spiritual is in every way. He reminded us that the spiritual body is connected to the natural body, but it is far, far better. And that contrast is only possible because of the great contrast that Paul speaks of. Jesus to Adam. The first man may have been alive, but the second man, or the last man, is a life-giving Spirit. Jesus breaks the bondage of decay. That's because he's more than Adam. He's not just the second man. He is the God-man. He is the Redeemer, the Messiah. He is the last. There is no successor to Jesus. There is no need for anyone else. He is God and man, perfect in every way. Death, after all, could not hold him. He rose from the grave because he holds life itself in his hands. Do you know this Jesus? This man from heaven? Because that is the most important question you will ever face. It's the greatest comfort that you will ever find. There is no one like Jesus. And no one can do what Jesus did. Break the bonds of sin, 
the bonds of death, give victory over sin and hell itself. Now, this was no mere show for us to observe. Paul makes it clear how important this is, how crucial it is to bear the image of Jesus in verses 48 and 49. He says that those who believe on Jesus, the man of heaven, will be like him. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven, Paul writes. We shall bear the image of the man of heaven in the same way that we have borne the image of the man of dust. Those who believe on Jesus will be like him. They will bear his image. They will have his spiritual body. They will know the peace and the glory that God has prepared for his people. The Bible says that it is appointed for man once to die. And after that, the judgment. This is a sober reality. All of you hearing my voice today will die someday. It may be soon. It may be years and years away. The fruit of bearing the image of Adam is knowing weakness, pain, and death. But that's not the worst news. For those who have been born only once, who have not been born again by faith in Jesus Christ, there is a second death that awaits. A death that is far worse. Eternal judgment for your sins. Will you hear my warning today? You don't need to die that second death. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again from the grave, you too will rise from the dead. Jesus has purchased a resurrection body for you. He's paid the price in full for your sins. There is life to be found in Jesus. Life is so much more real than you could ever imagine. The resurrection is real. The resurrection will renew you, giving you blessings beyond anything you could imagine. And the resurrection is possible because of what Jesus has done. He is the Redeemer. He is the resurrected one. Amen. Let's pray.